Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Total Soccer Show and our latest round of listener questions. On today's ep, we're digging into player medicals, we're getting Greg Berhalter a new job, and we're putting US players in the next season of Survivor. Mm. My name's Ryan Bailey. Joining me today, a man who probably watched a lot more Survivor than I have, which is the sum total of zero episodes of Survivor. Taylor Rockwell, hello. <laughs> Oh, buddy. Uh, I am batting zero episodes as well. So uh, I'm excited. I feel like I've I've sort of absorbed enough of survivor knowledge from like osmosis and its cultural impact early on that I have some answers to that survivor question. But uh, yeah, I've never seen an episode. So we'll see how it goes. I really hope I have the tiger as the theme tune because that's the only thing I know about survivor. That was the band that made that song. It almost certainly is not, because I doubt CBS wanted to pay the rights for that. <laughs> Indeed. Joining us to discuss that and much, much more, it's Mr. Graham Rutherford. Graham, hello, my friend. Hello, Ryan. How are you? I am marvellous. All the better for speaking to you and answering listener questions from my mailbag, oh. which is bulging this week, Graham. Bulging. It, indeed it is. Can I ask? Uh, can I add one more question to the listener question mailbag? I'm on the the edge of my seat here, waiting for your review of the Cheetos chicken wing sauce. You sent a picture to our Slack yesterday, of so. What did you make of it? So yeah, I went to a, a dining, a casual dining emporium last night, Greg. Cheetos uh, chicken wings. I did not order them. I just saw <laughs> oh, the poster and was grossed out. Uh, I mean, I had this vision of your entire diet being food collaborations where you wake up and have a, a big bowl of M&M Cheerios, then you have Coca-Cola glazed chicken wings for lunch, and then, I don't know, like a pizza top with Reese's I mean, Pieces for dinner? That's yeah. that's my vision of your diet. And Ryan, Ryan, you've I mean, you've said before, like, you're recording these episodes in your closet sitting on the floor. At yeah. least if you'd eaten the Cheetos uh, wings, then you could be sitting on your, uh, your porcelain throne while recording this episode, because <laughs> I'm assuming that would cause some gastrointestinal distress. <sighs> Tone lowered and we're three minutes in. Wonderful <laughs> stuff. I like that. I, I just imagine if you had the chicken wings and they were Cheetos ones, would it leave dust on your hands or sauce? I don't know. Yes. The answer yeah. is yes. Have you ever seen <laughs> have you ever seen the geniuses Oscar Isaac? There's a photo of him doing it, uh using uh chopsticks to eat Cheetos so that you don't get the dust in your hands. That is some next level snackery right there. Wow. Yeah. Oh, that's a life hack. Right? More on that from uh, our co host Joe Lowry, who's gonna wade in now and tell us how he eats Cheetos. Hello, Joe. If you're eating Cheetos with chopsticks, just stop and eat something else. I think that's my overall take. Yeah, it's going to get the job done. But I think at that point, it's time for a different job. I'm just yeah. over here thinking, mm. Graham, you mentioned Coca-Cola glazed wings. Why does that actually sound kind of good? Is <laughs> there something wrong is, with me? I was trying to come up on the fly with, with food collaborations. I think I might have seen that on a menu somewhere. I think that one might actually exist. I like it. Ta Taylor knows about cooking and barbecue and stuff. That's a barbecue thing, right? Is it not? What, using Coca-Cola? 
Yeah, I think you can because I mean it's like it's like sugar and and that's good. Uh, I think that's also a thing with baking lately. That seems to be a trend of like using Dr Pepper to make cake. I've seen like I've seen that a couple different times. Skeptical, but I have seen it. I am skeptical as well. Yeah, I'm trying. I'm trying to think of when you could use. You could definitely use uh, regular Coca Cola to clean rust off of metal, which is never distressing to watch that happen and then think about that going into your body. And to Has clean anyone... toilets after you've uh, had the Cheetos. Also true. Also <laughs> true. Has anyone seen those TikTok videos where people do like food no. hacks? And every single time I'm like, you've just added sprinkles to the cake. You've done nothing else. All right. They think they're geniuses. It's a, it's a pet peeve of mine. All right, we've, we've hit a nerve here. Let's move on and answer some listener questions still. Patreon.com slash Total Soccer Show. If you'd like to support this nonsense in a more formal manner, listener, we really appreciate you if you choose to do so. Lots of bonus episodes and videos and access to our lovely Discord there as well. Uh, let's get to the mailbag, shall we? Uh, we'll raise the tone with a question from Jizz Camp Jr. Mm-hmm. <laughs> tone uh, raised. Jizz has produced offspring that's never happened before, Graham. That's wonderful. Jizz Hornkamp Jr. Good stuff. Uh, I'm a huge Martin Odegaard fan, says Jizz, but sometimes I think he gets easily marked out of games. What kind of strategies do opposing teams use to neutralise creative playmaker-type players? And what do players like Odegaard need to do if they're being targeted by opposing defences? Now, Graham, there's been many approaches to this kind of thing uh, throughout the years and in terms of targeting creative playmakers if you look at say like the days when Maradona was playing the the technique was kick him endlessly and put <laughs> reducers on him as quickly as possible has That's it evolved from that <laughs> I've got the Scottish approach kick yep. them <laughs> <laughs> or the so, cap approach either yeah. one but yeah I've got that as number one on my list as well Graham yeah if you, yeah, if you I, watch that, that footage of like Maradona from the documentaries and stuff it's brutal the treatment oh, it's wild gets. Yeah, yeah, it is absolutely wild. We have moved on uh, a little bit from there. I mean, if anyone has seen players defending against Neymar, then that method is that approach is still living on. But you know, he deserves it. He's Neymar. Just kidding. Um, I'm not sure wh- how well I will be able to answer this question because I am not a coach. I don't have coaching badges or anything like that. I am an idiot who talks on a podcast, and this question really yeah. exposed how difficult coaching is because I that my uh, my list consisted of kicking them uh, starving <laughs> them of the ball so I, I'd probably look to starve a playmaker of I'd probably want to cut the supply line into them as much as possible so that they don't have the opportunity to get turned and into the half spaces and front up my defense so if, if the fullbacks are a route into the playmaker maybe use them as the pressing trigger and close them down quickly whenever they have the ball of course the risk there is that they can play around you and that playmaker will then have more time and space if that happens. So that's the gamble. I've thought, I've then got swarm them so you could flip the scenario and allow the ball to get into the playmaker, but then make them the pressing trigger essentially and, and, and swarm them. But again, if that player is press resistant as Martin Odegaard is, I think, and they pop the ball into space or into a teammate, then they could leave you brutally exposed again. Um, another option there's been a lot of chat about box midfields in the last couple seasons, and usually that focuses on what they do on the ball, but you can also have a box midfield out of possession as well. And Arsenal, ironically, with this question that we're talking about how to stop Odegaard, um, Arsenal do this very well. And I've noticed in games against Manchester United, they allow the ball to get into Bruno Fernandes. They even allow him some space, but because they don't think he's going to dribble through them, they sort of box him in. So that that can kind of be effective as well. But 
I uh, I don't feel like I have the knowledge base or coaching base to answer this question uh, effectively. Yeah. So maybe the other two guys have a better answer. I mean, I don't, I don't think any of us is like fully ready for our UEFA badges or anything. I think you've covered a, a good yourself. a good uh, stretch of ground there, Graham. I also had physicality, which can include like going in hard on challenges, which, which can include a little bit of afters if you maybe have a kick or a shove after the ball is gone, and also just talking trash. I think if you if the player seems like they are capable of being thrown off their game or if you can get them into a kind of a verbal battle, then they're less focused on the task at hand. And I think that is a good reminder for this question is that it, it comes down to the individual and it comes down to the player themselves. For example, much more likely to happen at amateur level, I would say. But if you have a team, you're playing a team with a very good number 10 and you're watching them and they're really good in distribution, but they're only playing with one foot, then you just put them on the other foot every single time. So if they only want to play with their right foot, you basically defend in a way that forces them to go to their left. And even if they are getting shots off or passes off, they're probably less likely to be accurate. So you can play on individual vulnerabilities or weaknesses in their game. Uh, I had starve them of service. I also had just deny them space. That was a thing we've seen time and time again of like a number nine or even a number 10 dropping deeper and deeper and deeper and suddenly picking the ball up off the center backs. And I feel like that's routinely a case of that player being starved of service, but also being starved of time on the ball or not being able to find much space to operate in. So then they move further and further back. And because you've kind of not given them time and space, they're moving away from goal. And so you're taking them out of the danger zone. And so in that way, I think you can have some success. But I think it always comes down to who that individual is. Graham, I know you've got some more things to say. I'm guessing Joe does as well. I just feel the need to add the administrative. I believe Jiz Hornkamp Jr. is a name that we gave to this questioner. Uh, way back in the 2014 World Cup, we had a system of if you uh, chose to voluntarily support the show, I think this is how it worked. We would give you... Uh, a name of a team like the team that you wanted to support i think is what it was and so this person uh we gave them a dutch name in the dutch name generator and this was the dutch name oh, generator real. that was created <laughs> or maybe that's a real person as well yeah, but that's yeah just we real. Some real player Taylor, yeah, I'm, just, I'm just We've, looking where, where he is because i've lost track of him because just just gets everywhere heracles, heracles, great. Like, he's at heracles at the yeah. moment yeah he's just joined them in the summer then maybe the dutch name generator is not that great but we definitely had one of those along <laughs> oh, the way that was that was uh yeah. that was maybe a little bit suspicious suspicious in there we we had some good ones though but but that so maybe it's a combination maybe it is just uh the the player who's now had a child i guess Mm. good to know good to know and also uh for the people who've messaged you can indeed use uh coke specifically mexican coke as a tenderizer uh for meat that also then gives you some additional flavor boom there we go (laughs) yeah answered um taylor i was going to take you back to the to the trash talking Mm -hmm. um theory yeah you could trash talk a playmaker or you could do what Stephen o'donnell did for scotland against jack grealish at the euros who was playing for england at wembley and do sort of like a reverse psychology thing where every time he walked past him he went lovely calves or amazing (laughs) (laughs) i quite like that see but i would just be like oh thanks man uh that's nice of you i'm gonna beat you now like i i I really i mean i guess you could do that if like you the person is then gonna feel bad about beating you but but so often if you get them into like i'm frustrated with you such that i want to meg you i want to take you on i want to embarrass you you're then getting them into an individual battle and they're no longer playing that sort of team-wide game that you would expect from that playmaker so it's an it's an interesting strategy. I don't know if complimenting would 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 throw me off. Maybe it threw Jack Grealish off. He's just used to Pep screaming at him about his calves. So compliments made him just be nicer. That makes sense. Very nice, uh, Joe. Your thoughts on this question, sir? Yeah, believe it or not, I didn't go down the trash talking or Scottish route. Um, I went with a few tactical <laughs> kind of points here. 
Uh, some things I think about when trying to stop really good central playmakers. Also, before I even get into that list, I went in to see if Odegaard was getting fewer touches than maybe some of his like relative positional peers. It's not exactly like for like with Odegaard usually popping up in the right half space, but he is. He doesn't touch the ball uh, as much as Saka, first of all, for Arsenal. Arsenal's uh, Saka is their their most involved attacker, but he does touch the ball more than the rest of Arsenal's kind of front group of players, but less than Soboslai. So Odegaard gets about 58 touches per 90 in the Premier League this year. Liverpool's Dominic Soboslai gets 77 touches per 90. Bruno Fernandes gets 75. Bernardo Silva gets 74. James Madison gets 72. I think of those players like roughly in sort of a tier, even though they're all different and they all do their own thing. Odegaard very much less involved than the rest of those kind of players. So I think there is some validity, also averaging two touches fewer per 90 this year than last year. I think there's some validity here in terms of how you stop those central playmakers. Number one is is put a bunch of players around them, right? Not necessarily just around them, but stacking numbers in central areas, right? Maybe you defend a little narrower in that game. It doesn't maybe matter too much what the shape is, but have a bunch of players in central spaces to really only leave space deep or wide. You can also man mark, which is something that doesn't happen a lot, but we see little man marking in moments, right? Maybe you man mark in the press. Teams do that a lot, or at least have some sort of hybrid man zonal approach to block off the playmaker. Maybe you maybe you man mark in moments or, or in phases of the game, or just for that one particular player, or if they're drifting out wide, you, Taylor, you talked about it's easier when you're a youth player to sort of force them onto their weak foot. Like if you're going to force me on my left foot, I've just become basically useless in a pickup game. Martin Odegaard is obviously way better with his weak foot than I am with mine, but he still has a weak foot, right? If you force him and, and deny him touches with his left foot, he is going to be more limited. So I think all those things make sense. I also think in the question, right, it's, it's what do players need to do to free themselves and I, I feel like I've been talking for a long time, but I, I don't think we got to that too much other than staying focused on some of the mental stuff. But I, I think it's a mixture, if you're a, a, an elite playmaker, of trying to free yourself because you're an elite playmaker for a reason, right? Your team wants you to be on the ball. It should be a mixture of trying to free yourself to impact the game, but then also like playing into what the opposing team wants, right? They are taking care to make your life more difficult, which is then a give and take, right? They have taken space from you and they've given space to your teammates. So if teams are using any of the strategies that we talked about, you know, I think at that point as a playmaker, you're shifting at least partially to thinking about, okay, I need to be sharp with my off-ball movement. I need to make sure I'm working hard in other phases of the game. If they're man-marking me, I want to be the one to draw pressure away from my from my teammates, or I want to be the one to make that run in beyond, and my marker might not go with me. So it's a balancing act, I think. But if you're aware of what's going on around you and you're decisive with your movement, I think those are some of the things that are most important for a playmaker in this situation. I agree to some extent. I would add, though, I think a thing that I maybe this is just very central in my mind from watching uh, the Beckham video today where he's talking about what Messi has brought to Miami. And we've talked about this previously, that Messi has basically said to his teammates over and over and over again, run less, do less. And not because lazy soccer is better, but because I think so often when you're in a situation where you are being like man marked or you have two players on you or your space is being crowded, at least from an American perspective, I feel like the sort of response to that is work harder, run more, like, like, like take those defenders with you, do some more running, get on the ball more often. And that can work, but it can also lead to, as I said, that player coming much, much deeper to try to make something happen. And you're sort of hurting your overall game plan so that that individual gets more time on the ball to some extent, at least, or theoretically. And I think it is an interesting idea that 
at least in the opening 10 to 15, don't maybe do that right away and see what they're doing, see why they're trying to do it and seeing what opportunities are presented by them crowding that space. If maybe they have like a, a right winger or the right back, like cheating inside to give more numbers centrally, then if you kind of stay there and they do that, maybe they've now opened up a huge gap in the channel or in the half space for you to attack. And so I think there is some wisdom in slowing down and not just like being like, I've got to do something really quickly, but like evaluating, processing what's going on, looking for the opportunities that, that are then presented and then trying to capitalize on them either by individual movement or by uh, taking yourself out of the equation or just directing other runners into that space. I think there are opportunities there if you can slow down and process instead of just kind of reacting by instinct. Marvellous stuff. Uh, Jeez, thank you very much for uh, reaching out to us there. We're going to come back after this break talking about medicals back shortly. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Hey folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early, there are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation. There's going to be offers coming through willy-nilly. There's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there. There's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain. There are many things to deal with. And unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively. But for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. 
Total Soccer Show, we come back to our listener questions with Adam Fominaya, who says, what are the major reasons why a player fails a medical? And under what circumstances might it be worth the risk to proceed with the signing anyway? It seems like it's almost always the case that a failed medical means a transfer is cancelled without question. Presumably a good player could heal, get fit, and still be a good long-term investment. Taylor Rockwell, Mm -hmm. I believe we've seen... A few examples of this, uh, yes, most sir. notably Mr. Ru Van Nistelrooy, who yes. famously failed his Man United medical in 2000, uh, hurt his, uh, damaged his ACL, did his ACL, and then signed a year and, later and was indeed a good investment. In the very next training session, that's yeah. the thing I cannot the day, the believe about the Van Nistelrooy one, is the, is the fact that he failed his medical, then the next yeah. day... Uh, snaps his ACL. It's because is... Man United are next level on everything, including their medical stuff. They were able to spot that before it happened. <laughs> yes, Minority Report style. <laughs> um, if you want to hear more about this topic uh, in a little more detail, we've also done a Soccer 101 episode about this one. A good reminder that Soccer 101 exists and we don't promote it very often, but Graham and I have been doing a lot of episodes uh, lately uh, on various topics, so check that one out if you're new to soccer or getting into it or you have basic questions that you have always wondered, including uh, what happens when a player fails a medical or why might they fail? And I think Graham talked about Rude in that one. A key thing to start off that I think we kind of landed on as a summary is that players don't really fail or pass as we understand it or as it's portrayed in the media. It's basically, Graham, I think I'm stealing this one straight from a thing you said. Uh, The goal is to actually create a picture for the relevant manager, board members, and stakeholders at the buying club who can then make the decision about whether to proceed with a transfer or not. So there's always going to be medical issues if a player has played for a very long time. They've probably had an injury or two along the way. And it's about how severe those injuries are, how much they could limit the player in the short and long term, and the impact they could have for training, and especially when it comes to the payment or transfer fee for that player. Is it worth it? And it seems to me like oftentimes it is looking at uh, existing problems or problems that they know are there, but then oftentimes when players end up not signing or the medical team advises do not sign this player, it's for previously unknown issues or issues that were existing that hadn't yet been diagnosed. So uh, heart murmur tends to be a big one. Jedi Robinson, I think, was reported to have had a heart issue, and I think that ended up not being the case. I forget how that played out. But anytime there's an irregular heartbeat or something like that, there's always going to be more questions asked. And if you're in a tight window, if it's the transfer deadline day, the medical staff can say, We've detected this irregularity. We don't know what could happen. It might be nothing. It might be something, but it's something we're going to have to pay attention to if this player is signed. Then they might not want to move ahead. I think a lot of times it has to do with how important that player is going to be and the significance they have for the transfer strategy. Uh, a couple other ones. Iwanko uh, Kanu uh, had a aortic valve issue when he was signing for Inter from Ajax. Uh, prior to making an appearance, he underwent a medical that revealed a heart defect. I think retirement was recommended. Instead, he had an aortic valve replacement in November of 1996, did not play again for Ajax until 1997, uh, but then got moves after that, plenty of moves along the way. And then the one that we spotlighted, or I spotlighted in the 101 episode, was Ali Sissoko, the French left back, failed uh, his first medical in a transfer from Porto to Milan. And the oft-cited reason was because of dental issues, uh, that he had very bad teeth, or at least teeth that could be indicative of larger issues. And I think that was relating to the 
connection, such as it is between uh, gum disease, uh, teeth issues, uh, periodontical problems, and heart disease. And and I think it also had something to do with his spine, as I recall. Very strange situation with Ali Sissoko. But you can have these like weird medical situations where there could be a larger problem that has they don't have time to unearth, or they identify a larger problem, and then it's how much do we want to have to deal with that in order to then have this player in the team. So it seems like oftentimes it just comes down to what is medically advised and then what the board or the decision makers are comfortable accepting as a risk. Yeah, I mean, clubs are essentially free to make whatever decision they want to make after a medical. In the case of Rud van Nistelrooy, I bet the medical staff at Manchester United weren't too happy about Manchester United paying whatever it was, £20 million for Rud van Nistelrooy a year after he suffered an ECL injury after they had flagged an issue in his first medical but then Rud van Nistelrooy goes on to score a lot of goals yeah. for Manchester United and is a success there so it's not um it's not a, a hard and fast rule as, as 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 Taylor kind of explains the other one that springs to mind for me is John Hartson who Rangers essentially I swear yeah. this is true he was going to go to Rangers from uh where was he was it like Coventry, Coventry. At, yeah Coventry um he was going to go to Rangers and he failed the medical at Rangers essentially because he was overweight. That was the reason they didn't they didn't sign him. He didn't have a medical issue. They just didn't think he was in particularly good shape. Can, can, you can I add, Graham? Because he was Wimbledon's record signing uh, in 1998 and we got relegated immediately thereafter. So it was a big investment for us. He already had like a belly at that yeah. point. Um, we sold him to Coventry, but they only paid for him on a pay to... I think it was like a pay to play basis because they couldn't sort of insure him with the with the medical uh, in, his, in his current fitness state, which is... <laughs> incredible and he still continued to bang in the goals for like season after season <laughs> after that it's incredible yeah i mean he goes to celtic obviously this is the the kicker in the story he goes to celtic after failing his, his rangers medical and this is a time when celtic are, are actually good under martin o'neill and making european finals and he scores 88 goals 146 games so uh yeah there's hope for us all and <laughs> if, if overweight john hartson can uh, fail a medical and then do that yeah our chart for him at the time which it isn't very 2023 was big fat big fat john big fat johnny hartson and that was said with uh, with love, and he was one of your players. Yeah, that was he was ours <laughs> indeed. Yeah, he was he was uh, he was a good player when he uh, was in his prime. I love the the Carnu one as well. Um, there's irony in him failing a medical and then literally becoming an invincible. Yeah. I like that as a, as a as a story arc. Yeah, it worked out. It worked out for him in, in the long term, and he got the heart issue uh, dealt with. So so that's indeed. good. Michael Michael Owen is another one who I think was on a pay to play deal. So the medical team were sort of much less worried than if they were signing him to a five-year deal for a lot of money, uh, given his injury track record. Indeed. Uh, Joe, anything to add on this one before we move on? Nope. Excellent. Let's move on. Ian Brady is in touch. Uh, Thank you for getting back in touch, Ian. With the season almost over, what's your assessment of MLS and Apple's decision to have almost exclusively Saturday 7 p.m. Eastern local games with some Wednesdays and a few Sundays thrown in? Joe, obviously a bit of a change to the scheduling for this season. How's it worked out? So for me, and I can only speak for me, maybe this has been a massive success for Apple on the the digital side and it's driven subscribers. As someone who isn't going to games in person, I have not particularly enjoyed this schedule change. It's made it harder for me to watch things live, which has made it less fun. Like it's pretty straightforward. Again, I don't know that I am necessarily the the target here for Apple. In fact, I'm, I'm pretty sure that I'm not. I don't live in an MLS market, so there are some some differences I'm guessing that I have versus fans that do none of us live in an MLS market, except you now, Ryan. Congrats, you're back. Yay! But I, I get that stadium crowds benefit from consistency. Like, it's helpful to know, 
hey, this is the rough routine of when I'm going to watch my team play in person when they are, are playing at home. So I don't know that all of the shift is bad going from a more scattered, uh, ir- irregular kind of schedule, which is what we've had in the past, to something that is more regimented. But I would like things to be spread back out at least a, a little bit. There are a few different ideas that I have that I think represent a happy medium. Taylor, I feel like you and I talked about happy medium a lot yesterday when it comes to the imbalance between playoffs and the regular season format and roster rules and all of those kind of more big picture-y things. This is maybe not as big picture as those things, but it still feels like we went from like no regularity to way too much, and there's probably a spot in the middle. Like Do a Friday night game every week and make it something fun or random or whatever. Have a Friday night game, put a couple of games back on Sunday, and next season, this won't be true every year, but play Inter-Miami in an offset slot every single weekend. Like, there's no reason that Inter-Miami should be playing at the same time, or at least overlapping in any large sense with the rest of the, the Saturday calendar. Like, give them their own slot. This is something that MLS will never have again. I think there's room for some sort of a balance. So, yeah, overall, for me, as someone who's watching these games from my couch 99.9% of the time, it has decreased my enjoyment of watching these games. I suppose the theory, Joe, is that most fans are not like yourself as general Major League Soccer fans. They have a specific team and it doesn't affect them so much and it's a regular appointment viewing for them. So they're watching their one team each week and they know to tune at that same time. That's the logic, right? I I think it is. But if you assume that those people are going to find it anyway, I don't know that we need, I don't know that Apple necessarily needs to cater to them so much. Like I I think having some consistency is good and and knowing when your team's going to play, like I said, it's helpful. But those teams, those fans, excuse me, are most likely going to figure it out along the way. And I think by having all the games on at the same time, by squishing into Miami, and they are a special case, to be clear, in with everybody else, I think you are decreasing your potential audience. Like you're taking away opportunities for the casual fan to come in and appreciate your product, which is, let's not twist it, like that's what MLS needs. MLS needs more casual sports fans or casual soccer fans to come and become diehard fans or whatever the level underneath a diehard fan is. Like that's what they need. And I I don't know (laughs) the soft fans. I don't know exactly what the solution is here, but I think what it is now is not really working efficiently to that end. Yeah, we've gone from one extreme to the other. Where last year, I remember when the Apple TV deal was agreed, and we were trying to project forward how this was how this would work. I remember saying that MLS needed to do a better job of establishing a slot in the schedule for itself. So I can go through every major European league, and I can tell you when those games are going to be on. So Premier League, 12.30 on a Saturday on TV, 3 o'clock games, 5.30 on a Saturday, and then 2.30, 4.30 on a Sunday. There's going to be Premier League games on then. Um, Spanish games are on Sunday nights. Uh, Serie A games also on Sunday nights. So basically the point I'm making is MLS needed to create a slot for itself. It didn't have that before the Apple TV deal. You never knew when games were going to be on. I would check livefootball.tv, which is the site that I use to see what's on television every single weekend, and it would be scattered all over the place with MLS. Now now it does have that slot, and I think there are some benefits to that. I, I... well, I was going to say I disagree with Joe. I can't disagree with Joe because it's a different perspective. His his perspective is different to to mine. But I I broadly think my experience of watching the league has been better this season because previously in the UK games are on different channels and MLS and now I've got everything in one place and get full match replays. I can get games on my phone, on my iPad, my laptop. Um, so that is a, a big improvement. And I also enjoy having the MLS 360 product, which is probably how I 
consume most MLS this season and that is a dramatic change where I've gone from watching full matches to watching this whip around red zone show and maybe I'm not getting the the nuanced tactical information that I would previously get from games but going across the league I feel like I've got a better impression of what's going on in every club and almost there's a lot of clubs there's a lot of clubs there that have missed this season so I agree with Joe there's there's a happy medium somewhere I think having the best match of the weekend on a Sunday evening would probably be a good way to balance it out. But I, I still think having the bulk of games on at the same time every Saturday is probably a good idea. Uh, I am fully team spread on this one, Joe. Uh, I, I am with you. I know it's all a matter of perspective, as you said, Graham. But uh, no, Graham, your perspective is wrong. Uh, yes, I would go. I would go Friday night. I would definitely go some games on Sunday and I would spread them out on Saturday. Graham, I think it's interesting you mentioned MLS 360 because I'm sort of inclined to believe that they have made this shift specifically to drive people to MLS 360. If you have all of these games happening at the same time, yes, you can find it if you are an individual fan of your team. But if you are a casual coming in or you are just sort of like nominally interested in the league or you just want to watch soccer in the evening, uh, that is the place you're going to go. And then you're going to get a, a ton of action, a ton of goals, a ton of it like, you know, back and forth and banter. And and I think it's it's what they think people want and and maybe it is i i've enjoyed it when i watched it but i also just enjoy getting to watch games and i think for people who are diehards or people who are tuning in to watch their team if there's another game on after or there's a game on before and it's an interesting team or two interesting teams i think they're going to stick around or i think they're going to tune in early and i think you are losing some of that like interest that could spread that could be generated by people finding new games and new teams yeah i think you can but then i think you're running into the issue of those games on replay you have to like change your settings to make it so that the scores don't show when you look at the thumbnail which you can do but it requires people to change the default setting and so if you're going in trying to find a game blind or oh, i was really excited to watch that game and i've been out now i'm coming home if you see the score right away, I think that's designed to generate interest as well. People are going to click on a four to three game versus a nil nil game. Uh, but but I think it it removes some of that suspense. And ultimately, it means that you're having to find everything on replay. And I love the idea of coming coming in at like 9 p.m. and being like, oh, there's a game on right now and just turning it on. I had that last night while I was doing research. Like, I like the idea of there being games on at different points to other sports. Like I think MLS, not saying they should, but I think a Wednesday night game would not be the worst idea given that you have Monday night football and oh, Thursday baby, night football. Oh baby, we've got midweek games, Taylor. Don't you worry about a thing. That's what I'm saying, man. That's like right now we do and I'm into it. Uh, but I, I think you that would be a very smart thing. You and 99 other people in the entire planet. <laughs> I mean, but to Graham's <laughs> point about branding and establishing slots, I think that there are points that they can do that. I feel like they have tried to commit too hard to a conventional American sports TV uh, schedule of like we're creating scarcity, but we're also driving people to specific days or a specific day. And then everyone knows where to go and when to watch. And and I get why you would do that. But I think it caters to a certain segment of people who are interested in the league, but at the expense of the other like larger group, I would argue, who maybe aren't as much in favor. How, sorry, Joe, how, how many games are on in a single, like 14 games in a single round of MLS fixtures? Yeah. That's Between a lot of matches, 14 and right? 600, I think, yeah. Yeah, it's a lot of games. <laughs> yeah. That is a lot of matches for them to play with. So I think you can do both where you can have four 100%. TV games. You can have, you know, Sunday night, Friday night, sat, um, Saturday afternoon, whatever. You can have four 
um, games that you put aside every single round of fixtures and then you have 10 matches on at the same time on Saturday night so that you have the live games and then you also have the 360 product that's yep. the route that I would go down I think that's the best of both worlds Reed, Graham said exactly what I was going to say I, I think we all pretty much agreed in what we said we just expressed it slightly differently you can spread it back out a little bit while still having teams mostly play in this, I think it's 7.30, I think it's been for most of this year, this, the 7.30 p.m. local. So you might get you know, four games on in a time slot instead of five, but like you can still run 360 off of that, which I think, I, I honestly think, even though I am not the market for 360 either, I haven't watched it, like except when Tom's been on it, because I, I want to support Tom. Like I, I haven't watched it at all. I, I, it just doesn't help me do my job. So I'm not the market for that, but I think it is a fantastic idea. And I hope it continues to iterate and improve and get better and become like one of the flagship MLS pieces of, of content. So you can still have 360 off of a more spread out kind of thing. Yeah, I, I think that's the solution. Yeah, we're all agreed. Apple's great. Um, so what, what about if we had a product, Taylor, where every game always kicks off at the same time, all 14, uh, instead of MLS 360, we call it entertainment 720 what do you think because <laughs> we go around the world twice for our clients i'm yeah. into it can we yeah. get roy uh, hibbert can we get roy hibbert can we get roy hibbert <laughs> and at left shrimp let's get them both let's get them both in there marvelous stuff. and a shrimp cocktail wall oh, we need that too let's treat ourselves to that one sometime thank you ian brady for the question let's go to jacob warnica now who says how would chelsea's women's team run so well yet their men's team is not the women's team have won uh, the last four uh, league titles. They were finalists in the 2021 Champions League. Graham, is it as simple as they made an initial pretty solid investment in the women's team and then didn't tinker with it? I, I personally think the answer is Emma Hayes. Yep. I think she has complete control of that women's team at, at Chelsea and that women's that women's program program. So, in in the men's game, there are only a handful of managers who are. The whole club. I've, I've spoken about this before. I'd, I'd say Jurgen Klopp is one of them. I'd say Ange Postecoglou has quickly become one of, one of them at Spurs and he was at Celtic. Simeone at Atletico Madrid, I think, is another one. I think Emma Hayes is in that category at Chelsea where she determines the style of play. She guides the transfer strategy. She takes training and devises strategies and talks to the media. And most managers aren't able to do that. And in fact, in most cases, I, I would say it's unwise for a manager to try all of those things, but there are a few who can, and and she is one of them. And I also think you mentioned the investment there that that Chelsea have made Ryan and, and the women's team. And yes, they de deserve credit for investing in their in their women's team, and they they did it early by the standards of other WSL teams like Manchester United are spending a lot of money, but Chelsea were doing it long before Manchester United were, were doing it. Um, but on the men's side, it's almost as if Chelsea have tried too much by having different technical directors and um, heads of scouting and different figures in the front office and, and I think it's made the hierarchy difficult to understand whereas on the women's side they have Paul Green who is the general manager and they have Emma Hayes mm. and that's it and actually I found an athletic article that says Green answers to Emma Hayes so it's, it's, a, it's a slightly different hierarchy that you would normally have at a club so it feels like maybe it's happened by accident because I'm not sure it is by design because I'm not sure anything that Chelsea do is 
particularly by design, but I think they've ended up with a more streamlined approach with the women's team, and it means there's less to get in Emma Hayes' way, and she is legitimately one of the best managers yeah. in the women's game. Yeah, that's that's where I am to some extent. I, I think the fact that Emma Hayes has been there since 2012, uh, by my count, the Chelsea men's team have had 10 permanent managers in the time that she has been in charge, and I think that level of stability and consistency, it means you know exactly what you need or roughly what you need in the transfer market, but more so than Chelsea having like a squad, the Chelsea men's team having a squad that's composed of like the last three different managers and their input plus a different technical director. So I think some of that consistency definitely helps. But like, to be honest, the answer is money uh, in my mind. And, And it is Emma Hayes and it is when Chelsea invested. But it's also just the reality that in the women's game, it's still the case that money goes a lot further. The world record transfer right now is Kira Walsh from Man City to Barcelona. Do you all know uh, the fee paid for her? It's, it's like half a million, right? Yeah, it's not It's not more than a few hundred thousand. It's 400,000 pounds. Yeah, so if you look at it with that in mind, in the top 10 all-time most expensive transfers in the women's game, Chelsea makes the list three different times for Pernille Harder, for Lauren James, and for Mia Fischel. So right there, you see that they they can spend a smaller amount and still have a ton of talent in there. Their salary budget, with that in mind, though, is higher than a lot of other teams in the league. And certainly when you look at like the second division in England, but also teams on the continent, too. I think their wage bill for maybe last year, the year before was like three point five million, which is pretty high for the women's game. And so you can pay players more. You can spend a little bit more. You're still not coming close. I mean, three point five million for the entire season is I, I like probably half of what different Chelsea men's players are making, <laughs> like if not even less than that. So I think for a smaller amount of money, you can do much more. Just teams, I think, haven't spent as much or been as willing to invest and Chelsea have. And so I think it allows them to bring in stronger players, keep them happy. And then with Emma Hayes, you have a coach who knows how to get the best out of them, who knows how to use the squad she has and then add to it as she goes to make them consistently better. So I think it's a combination of money and Emma Hayes, but then also the lack of investment elsewhere in the women's yeah. game. Yeah, and I think the gap is closing. You look at the, the top of the table in the Women's Super League, Arsenal, Manchester City, like there are other teams that are now waking up and realizing that this is something that is is worth doing and worth doing well and worth actually caring any amount about. Like in the past, though, the bar for running a women's team in a club that has both a women's team and a men's team has has just been so much lower, right? The bar for doing it well, the bar for spending all of those things, and in some ways it still is, right? For reasons that Taylor's gone through, you look at some of the, the transfer expenditures, it is still, it seems like apples and oranges and how these things are viewed at, at um, viewed inside clubs and, and the decisions that are made there. You don't have to put as many resources forward to run a, a women's team well, as you do on the men's side. And, and also you have the fact that Emma Hayes, Graham, to your point, has done things so well and has has basically not made many missteps in her time in charge of Chelsea. You put those things together and, and maybe the timing of some of the moves that Chelsea have made and you get towards the front of the pack in England and in Europe. And, and to be clear, none of these things are ideal. Like teams should be taking this seriously. We've seen how fun this can be. Like we've, we've seen World Cups. We've seen Champions Leagues. Like the, the Champions League final last year, was incredible. There is so much quality and so much room that needs to be covered for these teams to actually take this at the level that it should be taken seriously. 
And it feels like we're still a long way off from that. And I'm sure even there are so many different aspects of Chelsea that Emma Hayes would look at or that, you know, invested parties would look at and say, this needs to be better. But they have at least set the early standard yeah. in in England for how to run a women's team. Yeah, to emphasize that point, Joe, there was an interview with Crystal Dunn, like back when she was playing for Chelsea briefly, and she talked about how how like nice it was and how they had good enough facilities. But I remember her talking about how they had to walk past like the men's practice fields, multiple fields, and then also like the youth fields to get to their field that wasn't quite as nice. And so even there, there there isn't that sort of uh, equity and investment. So you, you are still like, there is definitely still room to be made up, ground to be covered. I also think, uh, final point on this one is just for people who play like fantasy American football, uh, it, it's, it's a little bit like the women's game is like playing in an eight team league versus like a 14 team league in that there are fewer teams who are willing to spend significant amounts of money right now on the women's side and so even if Chelsea maybe miss out on a primary target it feels like they can then just go to the secondary one and 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 maybe spend a little bit less and still get that person I feel like there's they're still able to get their targets much more effectively on the men's side I mean every Premier League club has like ridiculous resources at this point never mind all of the major clubs historically major and, and presently major clubs on the continent that can spend money and so I think it's just it's a much riskier pool on the men's side. So you're going to spend a lot more to get players who might work and might not under a manager who might be there and might not. And so that that sort of chaos across the board on the men's side, I think, is not as present on on the women's side, at least at time of recording. Excellent stuff. We can all agree that Chelsea made a very good decision in buying Kings Meadow from AC Wimbledon and helping to fund our new stadium as well. Queens Meadow should be called now, though, I suppose. Uh, Ryan, you don't, yes, more than, you don't get more than one hit on the bingo card for Wimbledon. Yeah. You hit it already. You didn't like you. You don't get two. Yeah, Do you oh. had it with Hartson. Joe, Joe sounding like he makes the rules here. Interesting. Okay, uh, Jacob, thank you very much for that question. <laughs> Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we're talking Bearhalter. We're talking Survivor. Back shortly. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Total Soccer Show, welcome back to our listener questions. Kyle K has been in touch and they say, if Ajax decides to have a foreign manager who still plays the Ajax way, why is the best option Greg Bearhalter? Could he succeed? As IX manager. This Who feels was... like a trap. Yeah. Well, so, Joe, this? Joe, I, I'm with you on that one. My first note is I suspect this is a secret Burhalter out question where we're trying to get him employed by a major European club to uh, to move him on. Uh, taking the question at face value, 
Uh, my answer as to why he is not uh, the solution is because he is Greg Berhalter and they are the Dutch. Uh, and that really is uh, a big part of it, that if, if you're talking about he's an American, which makes him emphatically not Dutch, uh, this is a strike against him. I understand the question is if they decide to have a foreign manager. But if they are making that choice, we talked about this with the big thing, that is already going to be a sort of deviation from what they prefer. And then you have to kind of fit them stylistically, but I think also have the resume to back that up and justify that hire. And I think right away, the talking point is going to be, so we're bringing in the guy whose team were roundly beaten by our national team at the World Cup? Like, yeah, that should make us better. I think there is a perception issue still that if you're bringing in an American who hasn't yet won silverware in a major way i i don't think that they are going to win over the the supporters i certainly don't think they're going to win over the media right away and i think you're going to have a a trent crim in the first season of ted lasso situation of just a lot of aggressive questions uh but coming from dutch reporters they would just be like you are not a good manager discuss like it's i think i think it would be well, too big of a move and how he'll be doing that who's the new technical <laughs> consultant at ajax exactly. as of yesterday so. exactly so wow. i think it's an interesting question because we we do talk about how burhalter is is sort of like reflective of the dutch style of the ajax philosophy of the Cruyff philosophy and then uh guardiola as well so there's a reason why it could work and there's a re- like he plays a 4-3-3 he has a lot of similar setup and designs and patterns that he wants to emulate so i think it could work i really just think it comes down to his reputation not quite being there and i don't think there's a single american coach who has a reputation that would get past that hurdle of we are a bigger club than you are as a manager why are yeah. we bringing you in yeah, I wouldn't put Berhalter at the top of this list either. I think his biggest value for the U.S. has been in recruiting, to be honest with you. For Lauren Balligan, Serginho Dest, Yunus Musa, Ricardo Pepe, you can run through the list of players that Berhalter has helped usher in by establishing, by all accounts, what seems to be a, well, by most accounts, what seems to be a very strong and cohesive locker room and those players are attracted to that all the ones I just mentioned so I think that's been his biggest asset to the U.S. men's national team I don't think it's been his tactical approach now Berhalter knows a lot about tactics he knows more about coaching this sport than I think any of us ever will but I don't think the U.S.'s tactical approach is necessarily what sets them apart or what helps them win games early on it is very you know we're going to build from the back through hell or high water and we're going to commit to playing with the ball and we're going to use a bunch of detailed patterns it's not really that anymore the u.s are more high press they changed the shape in 2020 they started to press more aggressively it's now built around the engine room in midfield and whoever's available of adams musa and mckinney and then pulisic and way up blazing down the wings like they they don't really resemble ajax all that much at this point even though there are some similarities so all that to say between the reputation and how his tactical approach maybe has shifted a little bit and the fact that I just don't know that it's the single biggest thing that sets the U.S. apart, I would go somewhere else first. And a couple of names that I would go towards if I was to actually finish this question and and kind of complete this thought experiment, Graham Potter, I believe, is unemployed right now, foreign manager. I would turn to Graham Potter, even though things didn't go well at Chelsea before I go to Burhalter. Hansi Flick is another one that I would go to first. There are others out there, surely, um, but but Berhalter is probably still one club job after this World Cup cycle away, one good, successful club job before you know we're talking about a move to a club like Ajax. Joe, how much? So we we fully agree. 
the question I then wondered is like, how much would it change if there were some connection to Ajax for Burhalter? So he has uh, a two-year period from 96 to 98 when he plays for Sparta Rotterdam. If he had played for Ajax then, or even just been in the team, would that make a difference? Or when he has the, the managerial gig with Hammerby, if that had been as an assistant with Ajax, let's say, does that change things? Because I think if there was a more direct connection that was previously established, I think then you could argue, oh, he played in the Ajax style. Oh, he was an assistant in the Ajax style. There is a connection there. He does get it. He understands the club. I think I would then maybe say it makes more sense. But since there isn't, I can't make that jump. It's an easier narrative. Like It's, it's an easier yeah. story to get people behind. But I, I don't think necessarily that Baralter playing at Ajax, I mean, maybe it makes him into a better coach because he would have learned things along the way. But if we isolate that and, and don't assume that there was any bleed between this fictional Ajax connection and his now coaching skill level, like I, I don't think that magically transforms him into a better or more storied coach. So I'd, I'd probably say no. All right. Uh, Graham, anything to add on this one? Bear in mind that um, Amsterdam's very flat, very suitable for bounce passing. It could be a... <laughs> A good, a good place. Yeah, it could, could be the could be the the perfect <laughs> fit for Berhalter. Does he like riding bikes and uh, going to certain coffee shops? I don't know. We've yet to find that out about his uh, personality. I think I think Joe hit upon something important where if there is overlap between Ajax's style of play and what Berhalter at certain times has said his style of play is, but either I'm not sure Berhalter's actually very good at setting up teams to do what he has previously said there's that famous or infamous quote whichever way you look at it about what is it joe disorganizing opponents with the with the ball yep i mean that kind of is the that the ajax way but we haven't really seen that recently from the u.s so if he were that manager then maybe he would be a good fit for for, for ajax but yeah right now i actually think berhalter is better off staying away from ajax because the U.S. national team has better players than Ajax right now, and unless he wants a flare in the head, yeah, I don't think uh, Ajax is the is the place for him right now. Good boy, nobody wants that. Uh, thank you very much, Kyle, for the question. One final one for this episode from Wallace Sean: Who wins in a USMNT or USWNT season of? Survivor. Okay, Ryan, before you get going, yeah. I need a British translation here because um, Survivor is not a show in the UK. Is it I'm a Celebrity? Just for me. No, is that kind, what it is? Kind of. So it's based on actually, Graham, Expedition Robinson, which was mentioned last week on this <laughs> yes. uh, which is a European Famous format. Columbus crew forward. Yes. There you mm-hmm. go. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> uh, produced by Mark Burnett, who also produced The Apprentice and convinced many people that Donald Trump is a good businessman. Uh, but it basically um, set on an island and you have to do a series of tasks, Taylor. Is that right? Again, I have never seen Survivor. <laughs> Joe, but is that I think, right? Well, I think, so to my understanding, yes. But then also you have like alliances and rivalries and yeah. you vote people off is yeah. the big thing, right? Are so, these I have, Joe's or are they celebrities? So I have seen Survivor. So I, I, it, okay. They have seasons where there are celebrities yeah. on the yeah. show and they have seasons where it you know, could be us on the show, right? Um, so yes, you are, there, there is the surviving element to this, but it is much more about the strategy of, of doing well in weird random challenges and also like the people side of things so that you need sharp people skills because there are alliances and teams and they shift and like Taylor said you vote people off so you need a you need oh, a wide a vote. right okay yeah you need a wide that was my next question how do you win like skills, are people yeah. actually dying on this show and it's the person who's left alive <laughs> yeah. at the end <laughs> the prize is your life wow Yikes. Well, so as I understand it, you win by like forming an alliance early, so you have enough people to consistently vote off people who aren't in alliances, and then you vote off smaller alliances, and then 
near the end, Joe, am I correct in thinking that it then gets pretty ruthless because that yeah. alliance at some point is going to have to break apart? Right. I mean, you can only hang on for as long as, as there are people around. And if there's four of you Sounds in your like alliance and there are four people left, then you're going to have a problem. I also have to add that this question being asked by Wallace Shawn makes me just want to say like inconceivable a lot. And it makes me think that this is all part of like the princess bride, uh, like riddles and uh, brain teasers that he's fond of. So I'm hoping this is actually Wallace Shawn asking this question, even though I'm now not entirely sure he's still alive. Uh, a, lot, a lot of people using nom de plumes in their listener question submissions, Taylor. Is an American actor, playwright, voice actor. He's still alive. Cool. So it He's could be the real yeah. I was going to see what shot. He yes. loves soccer. And there we go. Very good. Very good. All right. Um, so it sounds very Machiavellian, this mm-hmm. show. Uh, by the way, we're relying on Joe for a pop culture. Yeah, what is going on? <laughs> this has never happened before. I assumed that Ryan was going to make the Dutch tie-in, but I figured somebody would have seen Survive. Look, it's not... It's not like the greatest show ever, but it's it's a I fun it's time. You know, it, it's not I bad. I think it's on brand. Yeah, great. I think it's on I brand like it. that, that Joe is the one to have watched Survivor. Well, then I'm going to pick. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set out my stall right now. Uh, my pick is Julie Ertz. Can I still pick Julie Ertz? She's technically retired. Can someone rule on this? Can I pick Julie Ertz? You can. You're wrong, oh, but you can. Oh, my first pick is a retired player, so yes, you can. <laughs> Great, Graham. You and I me. know who Graham's pick is. I bet money I can I can tell you who Graham picked. Uh, yeah, I would also <laughs> match that bet because I feel like now, actually, I might have done a bad thing. But I'm going Julie Ertz anyway. Um, tough as nails, folks. She's going to have right. no problem with the actual survivor side of all of this. There's a video of her teammates describing her in one word from the last camp. So she had her send-off game last month. And basically everyone says beast or tough. That's like every single single word description that is used for her is one of those. I also think, you know, you're the number six, right? You're reading the game. You're the center back. You're reading the game. I think she'll play the game. And I I think she's going to have vision to decide, hey, I got to flip my alliance here. I got to stay with this alliance all while doing well in the challenges because she's Julie Ertz. Come on. I, I think Julie Ertz would do very, very well on Survivor. Wow. Uh, Graham, uh, I've written a name of a player on my phone. Yeah. Uh, tell me who you, your, your pick is. Does the player on the on your phone screen, screen also rap? Yes, it, uh, it does. Pick that yes. on my phone. That's what I had. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you can fish, man. Like, you know, that, that's, that's, that's going to be a valuable, uh, a valuable quality on this show, I feel like. Can I can I tell you my concern with Clint Dempsey? Because I he was my immediate thought as well. It's in the soccer tournament. His team does not win. And he seemed very just sort of like kind of cool, happy to be there. Like, this is a fun time. And I feel like if if Clint Dempsey is taking it seriously and like really wants to win, then I think he is the answer. But if he's just sort of like, hey, man, we're all just kind of here. I just want to fish. Like, then I think he probably is an early exit just because he would like get along well, but not really push himself to that next level. That's my concern with Clint. Okay. Yeah, but if he does the second thing, he might win by accident. There is that like, too. People forget that he's on the island and he's just been he's been living the high life, uh, fishing all these different species. Yeah, I still feel like he'd be a good contender, <laughs> and he can rap, you know, which will entertain people around the campfire. Yeah, that's so. that's a very good benefit. Taylor, any I, picks from you? Oh yeah, man. Uh, Weston McKinney is the answer. My reasons are several. Uh, he does seem to be a team leader and a very good locker room presence. That seems to be a consistent point. He's also very very competitive uh from everything i've seen including going back to his first like appearances with the u.s men's national team there were lots of clips of him from that camp like talking trash on the bus and playing like flinch games and if you're the one who like drops the juggle you get flicked in the ear like he seems to like a lot of like petty competitiveness but then also actual competitiveness on top but then 
Lest we forget, the producers are heavily involved in this. The producers want narrative. They have to have people who can be the stars. And the producers are going to love Weston McKinney for the reasons I already mentioned. But also, he's adorkable. The Harry Potter celebration, lest we forget. I feel like he's going to be a fan favorite really quickly. But then if this is all former or current U.S. players, I think he's got a solid resume. Like, I think even if veterans want to discount him, he has done a lot in his career. And he is an early sort of trailblazer in that way for certain players. So I think he bridges that gap where like veterans are going to want to keep him around, but newbies are going to respect him. So I think he's going to last a long time. I think there's two categories here, right? There's players who would be good for the public vote. And I think Weston McKenney's on my list as well. I had Trinity Rodman as as well Ooh. on that list. I follow her on TikTok. She's very good on TikTok, very funny on, on TikTok, got a lot of personality. So I think she would be popular with the public. Um, and then the second category is players who would like survive, which is how Clint Dempsey, I would categorize him. I think also Walker Zimmerman. Like he definitely looks like he's he's no stranger to a Bass Pro shop, is how I would <laughs> how I would put it. With See, Walker Zimmerman. As I recall, this Joe, Joe correct me if I'm wrong. Are the survivor challenges more gimmicky? than they are yes. like actual like island survival isn't it like balance yes, on a beam so. for as long as you can that's not to say none of them are difficult but they are uh-huh. gimmicky not like like there are colors involved and like you know pegs and holes and colors and all those things you know <laughs> i hope it's just like what color is this you survive to the next round um and then joe since you've watched before i'm assuming there is also a period because i've watched elimination competitions as well there is a period in which the person who like thinks they're going to go far and seems like a strong competitor is betrayed about Certainly. midway through because they are strong or because maybe they're also unpopular at the same time. And that is where I have Carly Lloyd getting eliminated is that exact spot. I think she survives the first couple rounds and then I think she gets booted pretty quickly and does a talking head exit interview in which she is furious about that decision. That seems, <laughs> that seems right on, Taylor. Hold on. That seems right on. Very nice. All right. I think we've all got some homework to do after this episode. It is watch some Survivor. I, I, I think there's 40 seasons of it. Yeah. So no, good luck. My. <laughs> it's been going okay. for a good couple of decades, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Well, well, is there any people left so. still to go on the show if there's been 40 seasons of a show called Survivor? There's been 40 Survivors, maybe. Anywho, uh, thank you very much, Wallace, for that question. Thank you, everybody, for submitting your questions. Totalsoccershow.com slash questions if you'd like to do the same thing. Get in touch with us. We'd love to hear from you. But for now, Joe Lowry, thank you so much for listener questionering with us. Thank you, Ryan. I'm just still in shock that I've seen something that you guys haven't. I'm not quite sure what to do with myself, frankly. (laughs) You're very welcome, Joe Taylor Rockwell. Thank you very much for your contrips. Uh, my pleasure, my friend. I enjoy that at the end of this one, the biggest source of conflict was whether or not you should use chopsticks to eat Cheetos. That, that That's that's good <laughs> stuff, guys. That's good stuff. Way to find common ground. There we go. And Graham Ruffin, thank you very much. Uh, I see you reaching for the chopsticks as we speak. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Ryan Bailey. At what point do I admit that I watched the film about the invention of the Flaming Hot Cheeto? Uh, should, is, that, is this the right time to admit that? Yeah. Uh, true who, story. Who was in that movie? Michael uh, Pena, oh, I it? can't remember. Taylor, we talked about this we film. Did. It's not very good. It's Michael Pena <laughs> directed by Eva Mendes. But as I recall reading, I'm not sure he actually invented the Flaming Cheeto. And she yeah. said something like, well, it's just important to tell the story. So uh, who, who knows what to make <laughs> of that one? Was it like a janitor or something? Was it like, <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Okay, I remember that one. Okay. I was hoping it'd be Jared Leto because it rhymes with Cheeto. But that's all for this episode. Thank you very much for listening to this one. Dear listener, we'll be back on the feed very shortly. But for now, bye. Bye. <laughs>